I want to begin, begin again with verse 19 of chapter 3. We're working our way through, just to kind of update you, those you are online as well as you here in the room, um, update you in review of what we're doing. Paul has, in the first two chapters, proved uh, his apostleship, that he has apostolic authority. The Judaizers, I hope you recognize that name, we, we've talked about them before, we're challenging that. And now in verses, excuse me, in chapters 3 and 4, he's dealing with his message, the gospel. And of course, what he's defending is that justification comes by faith, plus nothing else. They were charging him, they again, the Judaizers were charging him with uh, having a man-made, a made-up gospel. And they are, are insisting that it's not only faith, but it's keeping the law. It's uh, circumcising your boys, uh, observing the Sabbath, which was really important to them, as well as the feast days and a bunch of other things. So Paul's countering that. So he's at a crucial point in his argument, a really crucial point, in verse 19. Why then the law? And we covered some of this last week, but I want to start with it again. In this section, uh, verses 19, it's not a very long section, 19 through 22, Paul makes three very important points about the law as he compares it to the Abrahamic covenant, the promise. The first thing he makes is it was added to the promise because of transgressions. As I said last week, the law shows the sinfulness of sin. That sounds redundant, but that is the right way to think about that. It demonstrates how deep the problem of sin is in the human life. Secondly, and this is also very important, it's temporary. It was added because of transgressions, continuing in the verse, until the offspring, that is the seed, that's Jesus, that's Messiah, should come to whom the promise has been made. And number three, it's inferior to the promise. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, let's work through those three key points he makes about the law. One, it was added to show the sinfulness of sin. Two, it was temporary. And three, it's inferior. Let's work our way through each one of those. Now, again, I I don't know how much I should develop this because we've talked about this, but the Bible says over and over again, I, I think of this wonderful passage in Romans 3 that Paul develops, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Very famous verse. Everybody knows that. But all have sinned. What's the nature of sin? So Paul chooses that there are three words for sin in the New Testament. He chooses the word we translate transgression. And transgression is there's the mark of God's holiness, God's moral character, detailed for us in the law. Do we get close to that? We don't even get close to keeping that. So the more you dig into that revelation of the law, the most most, uh, common summary of that is the Ten Commandments, you see how short we are when it comes. Because Jesus says, James, his brother says, we'll study it when we get to the book of James, that if you violate one command, you're guilty of the whole thing. It's an organic, interconnected whole. 
So, I mean, this really demonstrates, the law really demonstrates the seriousness of sin and how, how devastating it is because it shows our need for a Savior. And that's, that's such an important aspect of the law. Most people don't think of the law in that way, that it demonstrates how serious, if you want to think of distance, how far we are from God's holiness, how inadequate we are to measure up to what God is asking us to do if we want a relationship with him. Secondly, so I don't think that needs too much development. I I don't think. Maybe it does. But secondly, until the offspring, that's the seed, that's the Messiah, should come when the promise is made, about which the promise has been made. So immediately, I drew on the board last week a little timeline. And that is really important. Because the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditionally allowed alternative that goes on into eternity. The law is not like that. The law was added, and if you want the exact date, it would be 1446 B.C. at Mount Sinai. It's added to the promise. It's not parallel to. It's not separate from. It's added to the promise. My little chart showed a vertical line. It's added. But it, it has a life to it. It exists and functions and is operative until the seed comes, until the offspring comes, until the Messiah comes. And that completes his work. That's in AD 33. So the law has a beginning and has an end. It's temporary. What's the Abrahamic covenant? Unilateral, unconditional, goes on into eternity. What a difference. And for the Jew, and not only the Gentile, but for the Jew particularly to read this, this verse particularly, to read this and think about this, it blows all kinds of holes into the argument of the Judaizers who are saying you must keep the law to have a greater justification a more fulfilling sanctification. Paul says, no, you don't. You missed the whole point of the law. And then thirdly, this is a little more difficult, a little more dicey. The word I used was it's inferior. Now, Paul says, he puts it this way, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now let's think about that, because there are a number of passages in the scriptures, Deuteronomy 33, verse 2 is one of those, which tells us something. I'm going to draw it on the board this way. Where, well, that was fun. The year is 1446 B.C. Here's God. God gives the law through angels who communicate it to Moses, who communicate it to the people. There are a number of references to this. I'll just use Deuteronomy 33:22 in the Old Testament. Here Paul is using it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. And he uses the word, 1446, this is a mediated covenant. You know what I mean by the word mediated? There's a mediator between. There's a mediator between God and Moses. It's angels. The mediator between God and the people, angels and Moses. What was the Abrahamic covenant? 
There was no intermediary. There was no mediator. If you throw it over here, it was God speaking to Abraham directly. There's no mediator. There's no intermediary. There's no angel involved. It's God directly saying, Abraham, get out of war and go to the land I'm going to show you. Did Abraham do that? Yes, he did. So he's setting a comparison. The law is inferior to the covenant promise, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant promise God made to Abraham, because this is a mediated covenant. This is not a mediator. There is no mediator. There's no intermediate. There's no person. There's no entity. There are no angels in between God and Abraham. So the, the inference he wants us to draw then is that the law is thereby superior to, uh, excuse me, inferior to the Abrahamic covenant because it's a meteor. It's, it's, it's not that it's bad or it's evil. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying this is inferior to that. Because God directly spoke and directly made that threefold promise to Abraham. God speaks to the angels who communicate to Moses, who communicate to people. It's a mediated covenant. Does that make sense? So, can I show me? So, when Charleston Hessen goes up to get the Tethys, <laughs> I thought God wrote on the Tethys directly. The thought that I had, that I I'm going to have to leave everybody sitting no, it's just the hand wrote over his finger. That's right. But um, the Bible is telling us here that when Charlton Heston is up there, there is an angel between the Lord and between Moses as God's finger. So it may have been an angel's finger that God is. I mean, I, I can't explain this, Bill. I don't know. But all the text is telling us here, and, and there are several. Uh, passages in the Old Testament talk about this. One of the Psalms talk about this way. But th that God communicated through an angel to Moses. That's what the text is telling us. And so you're correct. Cecil B. DeMille made a mistake when he depicted Charlton Heston up there on that mount. Well, but that's unfortunate because a lot of us sometimes confuse some of those movies and stuff yeah. with what's in here. Yeah. And this is. This is a, again, it's in the Old Testament. It's not in the account for us in the Exodus where it's detailing the narrative of what happened. But it doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's just the information about the angels and their role as a mediator is, is explained further on in the scriptures. Several of the Old Testament passages as well as here in the New Testament under, uh, under uh, Paul. Is there any place in, in, the, in the scriptures that says, that the um, Abrahamic covenant does not end? Uh, well, yeah, in a, in a sense, he's, he's even intimating that here, Fred, that it goes on. Uh, maybe a better way to say it is it goes on into eternity, and that's because any, everything ends in eternity, because right. eternity is infinite. But it, it goes on because all of the various promises that the Lord made to Israel land and, and, and so on will be fulfilled in the coming kingdom of the Lord right. Jesus. And so then that, and when that ends, that's what ushers in the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth, the phrase that's used in church. Does that answer your question? So, I mean, it's an inference. It goes on until eternity, and then everything ends because the eternal state begins. That's a very good question, though, because to clarify that, I think. So it, it's, it's not saying 
again, this is not a value judgment about the law and its context. Because in Romans 7, 12, Paul says the law is good and perfect and righteous. The problem isn't the law, the problem is us, the problem is humanity. But he's just making a very important point. And listen, because of his argument about justification by faith plus nothing else, countering what the Judaizers have been saying, Paul's making a very important biblical point and a spirit-inspired authoritative point about the nature of the law. The law is different. The Mosaic Covenant, if you want to use that way, phrase, the Sinai Covenant, is different than the Abrahamic Covenant. It's not that this is evil. It's different. It has a different purpose and a different function. And that's what he's trying to clarify. And for the for the Judaizer and then the people that are listening to them, this is a profound point he's making here. This this maybe I should put it this way. This is one of those points that seals his argument about the nature of the law versus the nature of the promise, the Abrahamic covenant, and the promise of blessing, which is the blessing of justification. All right, now listen, I, I really wanted to develop that. In, is everybody with me on what he's saying in verse 19 and verse 20? Either online or here in the room. Is everybody okay? All right. Yep, we're good. Now let's just continue. Now he's not, he's not done, but he wants to make a, an additional point here in verse 20, um, 21 and 22. It's connected. Is the law then contrary? to the promises of God. Is there a conflict? Is the law contradicting the promise? Is the law, is, are, the, are the, the, the elements of the law and the elements of the Abrahamic covenant in conflict, in contrast, are they contrary to one another? That's a good question. And he answers, certainly not. The strongest way you can say no in the Greek language, meganoita, absolutely not. For if the law if a law had been given that could give life, when he says life, what does he mean by life? Eternal life. Then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If you could gain eternal life through keeping the law, then you could be justified by the law. You could attain righteousness by the law. But scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Um, when he, I'm reading from the ESV translation. The, he says, everything is imprisoned under sin. That's an interesting translation. ESV, or I mean NASB and NIV say, the law declares the whole world is a prisoner of sin. This reiterates the law was given because of transgression. Let me paraphrase it in this way and make sure that you're with me on this. The function and purpose of the law is to demonstrate your deep need for a Savior. 
because the purpose of the law is not to redeem or to justify. The purpose of the law is to show how you are walked with God, and it's to demonstrate your need for a blood sacrifice. That is temporarily provided by the sacrificial system, but it will not be permanently provided until the Messiah comes. So another way, another way of saying this is the law prepared the human race for the fulfillment of the promise, salvation. In you, all the nations will be blessed. So the purpose, the fun, let me rephrase that. One of the purposes, one of the functions of the law was to prepare the human race for Jesus. It's to, it's to prepare us. It, it locks us up so to speak, because it shows it every time a Jew made the sacrifice in Jerusalem, every every time the Jew took and, and had a burnt offering or a subsequent peace offering, Leviticus 1, Leviticus 3, they're just reminded, I'm a sinner. I have to have my sin atoned for. Atone is the Hebrew word which means to cover. I have to, I, God has to take care of this for me, or I can't have a walk in fellowship with him. And so every year you do that, at, at least once a year. Many, many Jews did it multiple times a year. So it's just a reminder. And so every, every year you're just reminded. You're reminded over and over and over again. That's not evil. That's not bad. That's just the, that's what it does. It's preparing you. And Jesus comes. And the book of Hebrews marvelously picks up on this and says, in comparing and contrasting Jesus with the burnt offering sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice, what's that phrase in the book of Hebrews? Is once for all. So Jesus, that's why the New Testament uses the language, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Because then the law, its function, its purpose ends on April the 3rd, AD 33. It's over. It's not that it was evil, it's, it's good, it's righteous, it's perfect. Because that's how you could walk with God. God would have told, but it's preparing you because the promise is there's coming a day when a Messiah, in the words of Isaiah 53, will die for sin, will become the object of God's wrath, and will cleanse his people from all unrighteousness. If you're a Jewish person faithful to the law, that's what you're expecting. And the law prepared you for that. That's what Paul is saying here in this, this is quite wonderful phrase. Are they contradicting, contrary, and competition in conflict with one another? Absolutely not. The intent of the law was not to give eternal life. It prepared us for the Messiah's work. It held us in expectation, in like a prison, until the Lord Jesus would redeem us, purchase us, free us. I'm, I'm adding a little bit to the language that the New Testament uses. All right. Jim, I, I uh, have a comment. Uh, yes. I, w I wouldn't call the law uh, guidelines, but um, I do understand what you're saying is that by obeying or trying to obey the law, it teaches us how to walk the way God would have us walk. It's kind of like that, right? That's right. And it enabled us to walk because of the sacrificial sacrificial system, 
where the offerings would be made, God would atone for sin so that you continued, you would be able to continue to walk with God in loving obedience. But it, 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 that's right, Woody, the way you're the way you're saying it, that's right. Thank you. Paul does one more thing, then, if there are no other questions. He does one more thing in verses 23 through 29, where he talks more about this function of the law. He's going to use some very interesting words here. Now, I'm in verse 23. Now, before faith came, in, in, the, in the language of the Greek uh, uh, syntax there, it's now a definite article. Now, before the Faith came. Do you know what I mean when I say definite article? Before the faith came, as a very specific thing. What faith? Faith in the Messiah. Faith. Another way of saying that is, before Jesus showed up, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So you have two interesting figures of speech there. Captive, I'm reading from the NIV, or ESV, excuse me. They translate that captive and imprisoned. Now, when you first read that, you think of that negatively. It's almost shocking. What? For the Jewish person or for the Gentile who converted to Judaism, the law held me captive? The law imprisoned me until Jesus showed up? That's positive. Think of it in this way. You are imprisoned, you're captive, as in protective custody. The law served for the Jewish person, for the Gentile who converted to Judaism. Remember a lot of those people you see in the Old Testament, like Ruth and Rahab and many, many others, the law was like a protective custody. It, it shielded them. It guarded them. It protected them. It was a sphere of safety because you were under the care of God. He was atoning for your sin. He was enabling you thereby to walk with him. It protected you from the polytheistic gods. Because Israel in the ancient world, even to today, but Israel in the ancient world, that was a rough neighborhood. There were polytheists all around, the immoral, paganistic, uh, animistic, temple sacrifices, temple uh, prostitutes. It was a den of iniquity all around them. But the law was like a protective custody. It secured it. It's a place of safety. That's what Paul's saying. This was one of its wondrous purposes. And then he adds, verse 24, so, therefore, the law was our guardian until Christ came. And that word guardian that word guardian in the Greek language is had a doge. That's a G. That's a G. Pedagogy. Do you can you think of an English word that comes from that? Pedagogy, pedagogue. In the Greco-Roman world, 
let's let's suppose that all of us are wealthy landowners in some Greco-Roman city, okay? And we have the means to do this. We have three or four children. What would we do with those three or four children? Murder them for adulthood. We would hire a pedagogue. That pedagogue would be a, sometimes that's translated, a tutor, T-U-T-O-R, but also a disciplinarian. Also, someone who would guard and protect them because you're not with them. So what you would do, you'd pay somebody, and usually they would come into your house. Sometimes it would be a little, like a school building or whatever. But you would hire them. And what they would do, they would teach the kids. They would discipline the kids. They would guard the kid because you're not around. You're a busy business person or running your, your estate or whatever. And what is he saying? The law served that function. It was our guardian. It was our teacher. It was it was that that which was the source of discipline. And so, this is almost making it too loose, but I think it fits. The law was our nanny until Jesus showed up. Priest warden. Yeah, but I mean it's it's. What Paul is saying here, this is a positive and an instructive understanding of what the law was supposed to do. It was putting us in protective custody. And when I say us, I'm talking about the person who's the Jewish person, the Gentile who converts to Jesus, because that's how well, you come under the authority of the law. This is what it's going to do for you. It's going to like put you in protective custody until Jesus shows up. It's going to be your pedagogue until Jesus shows up. It's going to be your guardian. It's going to be your disciplinarian. It's going to be your tutor. It's going to instruct you. It's going to help you understand who God is. It's going to help you understand what his purposes are. You'll learn all that by reading the law. And that's what Paul is saying. The law served a very positive function. That's part of what Paul's arguing in Romans 7, verse 12 and following. It was good. It was righteous. Perfect. He goes on, but now, in verse 25, but now that the faith, the epistles has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Same word. We're no longer under the guardian. The role of the law as our nanny comes to an end. Why? And he's going to give now three very important reasons why we are no longer under the authority of the law, why we're no longer under the law as a nanny, putting us in protective custody, being our pedagogue. Why? Reason number one is verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now listen, why does he put it that way? You're all sons. I mean, literally, you could translate that. You're all children of God. Why does he put it that way? Because if you're, and the word there is adult, an adult son, an adult daughter. If you're an adult, why would you want to go back under the nanny? You follow me? You come to faith in Jesus Christ. You now, for we are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Your new identity is you've put on Christ. You are now identified with the Son of God. You become a child of God. And the word is always an adult child. So you've now, quote, grown up, close quote. You have matured because faith in Jesus Christ is the end and finished and purpose and goal of the law. We've reached that goal. Why would you want to go back under the law as a nanny? That's what the Judaizers are saying, aren't they? You need the law for a more complete salvation and more complete sanctification. Paul's saying that's ridiculous. The law was our nanny. The law put us in protective custody. But Jesus said, come. We are now an adult child of God. We have put on Christ. That's our new identity. Why in the world would you want to go back to that inferior status? You know, think of your children. Your children reach 21. Do they want to go back to nursery school? Do they want to go back under a nanny? That's ridiculous. I know of my kids, there's no way that would have happened. And that's all Paul says. It's very simple language. You've put on Jesus. You have a whole new identity. That was the goal, purpose, and end of the law. It's been achieved. Why in the world do you want to go back under the law? Ah, boy, there's an effective argument, putting an enormous hole in the contentions of the Judaizers. The second reason is verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Jesus. A little phrase in Christ or in Christ Jesus is used 240 times in the two times in the New Testament. It defines our identity. In Christ, there's total spiritual equality. There's no breakdown. The, the normal ethnic and social and gender background breakdowns of the human race don't exist in Christ. Jew Greek. Slave-free, male-female. Ethnic background, social background, gender background. At the cross, everyone is equal. Not in the law, but at the cross. Because the gospel is for everyone. In you, all the nations will be blessed, God promised Abraham. It's worked out through what Christ did on the cross. It's available to all humanity. Now, under Judaism, you could come into Judaism, you could convert to Judaism and experience all the blessings of the covenant, but not as a Moabite worshiping Molech, or not as a Philistine worshiping Dagon, or a Phoenician or Canaanite worshiping Baal, etc., etc. You are now in Christ. You put your faith in him now. To equal. Why? If that's your new status, why would you want to go back under the law? Why would you want to do that? And then thirdly, the third reason that he offers is in verse 20, um, 29. And if you are Christ's, that's your new identity, you belong to him, then you're Abram's offspring, heirs, according to to the promise. You're not only a child 
of God, an adult son, child of God. You're not only totally spiritually equal at the cross, you're a heir. You're going to speak later on, you're a joint heir with Christ. That does not come through the law. That comes through the salvation message of Jesus Christ. If you're an heir to the coming kingdom, why in the world would you want to go back to the law? And so to me, he is capping off his argument in, 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 in this, this section here, 23 through 29. It's irrefutable. A Judaizer could not stand up in any way countering what the Apostle Paul has said about the salvation, justification by faith, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, the old nation will be blessed in the law. They have two different functions, two different purposes. They're not at war against each other. They have two different functions. And if you are here, why would you want to go back here? Why would you want to add the law to it? It has absolutely no purpose to add the law to where you are now, in Christ. You're a joint heir with him. So you're a child of God. The function of the law is your nanny, no longer necessary. You're spiritually equal at the cross, and you're an heir. There are the three reasons, there are the three reasons why you're no longer under the authority of the law. You don't need the law. It no longer serves a purpose. You got it? And, I mean, listen, this, this is really, I know you don't get excited about biblical truth, but this is really exciting stuff. Because it, it reminds us of the immensity of God's grace in putting us in this position. We put faith in our faith in Jesus Christ. This is who we are. This is our identity. This is, he's describing you and me. He's describing our identity. Now, before we look at James, I want to do I want to do something in chapter four to complete this, and then we'll go back. Do you have any questions or? Oh, please, absolutely. In twenty nine, then the, the prompt to promise um, the promise of Abraham and come. That's right. In you, all the nations will be blessed. Yep. Blessing of salvation. And you see that you are Abram's offspring. What, what does that mean? I, my, my lie, I'm from Germany. It doesn't go back to Abraham. I'm not a Jew. What does he mean? Yeah, I mean, you now. Abraham is the father. Paul says this. Abraham is the father of all who believe. Abraham, that champion of faith. We're, we're part of that. We are now participating in that aspect of the promise. And you all the nation were blessed. I'm being blessed because of that promise God made to Abraham. It's the blessing of salvation because salvation comes from the Jews. Justification is by faith in Jesus. It was a Jew who was the Messiah of Israel. So it's just, it's, it just integrates it meaning what he's teaching about the salvation, justification in, in comparison to the law. It integrates all aspects of the Old and New Testament together. I've said this many times. I'm pretty sure I've said it here. If you don't understand the covenants of the Bible, you don't understand the Bible. You, you don't understand the major themes of the Bible. But if you understand the covenants, you, it really makes sense what God's doing. And you understand that transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. 
And it, it just, oh my goodness, all of a sudden everything, lights go on, it opens up an understanding about scripture that you don't have if you don't spend time trying to really master that. All right. Any questions online there? Everybody with me? All good. 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 All right. Now, I, I said I want to go to the James stuff here in just a minute, but let me do one more thing in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, because it's such an important, important piece to complete his argument. Notice what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. <clears throat> I mean that the air. Now, why is he? So in my Bible, what I did is I circled air in verse 1, circled airs in verse 29, and drew a, a, a line between them. He wants to explain now what he means by error. So verses 1 through 7, he details a little bit more about this idea of being an heir. So he's shifting, he's shifting our thoughts. Under the law, the law serves our nanny. In Jesus, we're fully grown, we're now identified with Christ, and we're a trustee. We're an heir. We're going to participate in the blessings. So he had one more metaphor to develop. I mean that the heirs, as long as he's a child, is no different than a slave. Now, you, you, again, you have to understand what he's been saying earlier about the law being a nanny and all that. But you, you understand that. Here you have us, to go back to our example I was using, we're all very wealthy landlords in first century Israel and so on. We, we have a firstborn son. That firstborn son is our heir. When we die, our firstborn gets everything. They get the whole shebang. What Paul's saying is when your son is a six-year-old, he's lord of the manor. He's going to inherit everything. But is he functioning in that role? Is he enjoying any of the benefits of that role? No, Paul says he's no different than a slave. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that, you know, he's, he's slaving in uh, cotton fields or he's your house. That's not what it means. It's just mean in terms of his, he, he's restricted. He doesn't have a lot of freedom. I mean, a five-year-old doesn't have any freedom. You, you put that child in protective custody. That's what he's saying. So legally, he owns the estate because he's your heir. Practically, he's no different than the house slave. He's no different than the, the tutor who's, who's putting him in protective custody. Though he's the owner. Verse 2. But he's under guardians and managers. Some translations have trustees. Now, that makes sense. That's true today even. You know, sometimes parents set up trust accounts for the kids. And, uh, you know, it can be a financial manager or a bank or somebody. They're managing all that. The kid owns it. It technically his. But when does he get advantage of it? When is he able to tap into it? Well, usually you set it up 21, 25, 30, or you stagger it. Always using, using these words, which are very familiar in the first century, very familiar for you and me. There's a guardian over the estate. There's a trustee. There's a manager. Until the date set by the father. And you set up a trust account. That's 
kind of the language we use today. You say, this trustee, you know, it's a financial institution or it's a bank or a lawyer or whatever you're doing. You say, I, when, that, when that, my son reaches 21, he can tap into it. It's his. Or when I die, it's his. Or, you know, however you're going to write it. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The basic principles of the world, literally in, in Greek, the A, B, C's of the world. That's literally what the, the language. Okay, what does he mean by that? The A, B, C's, the elementary principles of the world. There's a lot of discussion about that. What he seems to be saying is, whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, you're enslaved to the the basic, elementary, fundamental experiences and principles of what you believe. If you're a Greco-Roman person, it's the elementary stages of your religious experience growing up worshiping Zeus and Apollo and all that stuff. If you're a Jew, the elementary principles of what you experience in the feast days, in, in the burnt offerings, in observing the Sabbath and so on. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Do you think one I'm extremely warm and two I want to write something on the board? If I could use PowerPoint slides in this room and all that, a lot of stuff on the slide, but I can't keep doing all this. All right. Here, here's the timeline of history. He calls this the A, B, C's. The principles. If you're a Jew, it would be the ABCs, the principles of your Judaism, what you believe about the law, being under the nanny and all that stuff. But, in God's economy of things, when the fullness of time came, that's a pregnant phrase. I want to talk about that in a minute. What happened? Jesus showed up. But notice what he says. Born of a woman, born under law. I want to talk about this in just a minute, but okay, born under a woman. Why emphasize that? That the elementary ABCs of principles of life, whether you're Jew or Greco-Roman person, is going to be superseded by this truth. The one he's been talking about, the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, this individual, this Jesus, the faith in Jesus, that's coming. Okay, who is this? In the fullness of time, God thinks with his son, born of a woman. This is the Son of God, born of a woman. Why tell us that? Why explain that? To humanize him. He's human. He is a human being. Now listen, but he's also the Son of God. This is the definition of Jesus theologically. Don't forget it. If you want to get into heaven, you have to say this to me. 
You're supposed to smile at that because that's not true. Don't believe that. Who is Jesus? He's undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. He's forgotten. This is what Paul's saying. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law. Why tell us that? He's a Jew. He was born under the legal system of Judaism. That's a wonderful summary of who Jesus is. It's one of the unique summaries. I mean, it's just a couple of phrases in the scriptures. Could you repeat that? It's a couple of phrases summarizing who Jesus is. He's the son of God, born of a woman, born under law. He's deity, humanity, a Jew under the authority of the law. So the ABCs of your life, whatever, wherever, whoever, and whatever you live under, Greco-Roman person, Jew, or whatever. This is not superseded by a new truth. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of one born under law. What does he mean by the fullness of time? I one time wrote an article on that. It's a, it's a powerful phrase. Fullness of time. At just the right moment in history. So there are several fullnesses of time. But what's unique about this one? Christ comes. Yeah. But, I mean, the fullness of time. I, 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 I'm almost out of time here. But can I develop this, or do you want me not to develop it? Would I, could I develop it? When, when, when Paul uses the phrase in the fullness of time, at precisely the right moment in history, there was a political aspect to this. A philosophical aspect to this and a religious aspect to this. First of all, the political aspect is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a colossus. You, you, the more you study that, more amazed you are at this, this entity called Rome. The Roman Empire ruled by terror, ruled by fear. But the one thing they did, it kept order. Pompey, one of the military officers, neutralized all piracy on the Mediterranean Sea. Mediterranean was Roman Lake. Rome built a road system all through its empire, which extended from the borders of what today would be Scotland all the way to the borders of what today would be Iraq. And there were roads connected. And some of you traveled, if you've been in Europe or been in the Middle East, you'll see the remnants of the Roman roads are still there. 2,000 some odd years later, in some cases, 2,500 years old. And what the Roman roads, the Roman roads connected everything. Do you know the Caesar could issue an edict, and in two weeks that edict would be all through the empire? That's amazing. That's almost like a cell phone in the ancient world. And do you know, because of that, the Roman legions, they had legions. There were two legions in the Middle East. Actually, if war, if you count two in Egypt and two up in Syria, but those Roman legions, they could be anywhere in the empire in about four weeks because of the Roman road system. And, and the, 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 the legions, the, the, that's the division of the Roman army, they were so efficient. And not only were they the military arm of the empire, they were also, when they weren't fighting war, they're building. If you go to Caesarea, that 
great port city that Herod built, the great, the great aqueduct that brought fresh water from the springs up in the mountains into Caesarea, that aqueduct was built, built by the 10th Legion of Rome because when they were fighting, they were building. I mean, it was an incredible entity. There, because, listen, then when the gospel is spread through the Roman Empire by the Apostle Paul, for example, on his three missionary journeys, how did he get to all those different cities and towns using Roman roads? Philosophically, so the, the first entity that defines the fullness of time is political. It was Rome. The world, was, the, the Mediterranean world was so integrated and knit together by this entity called the Roman Empire. And that's the world in which Jesus was born. Secondly, philosophical. The, 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 the Greek philosophy, the Greek worldview, Rome just adopted it completely. They changed the name, just rolled everything into it. It was the language of Greece. Koine Greek. That was the language of the Roman Empire. Now, in centuries coming later, it'll be Latin, but the language, the lingua franca of the day was Koine Greek, the Greek language. What was the New Testament written then? Greek. So that everybody would be able to read it. Secondly, the, the Greek philosophy, the Greek civilization, asked the right philosophical questions. Socrates, his student, Plato, his student, Aristotle, and all the others, all of them believe that there's something beyond the physical world. All of them believe that there, and Plato in his, in his dialogue would use the word theos. He uses the word God all the time. He doesn't mean the God of the Bible, but he's saying there's some transcendent being. There's something beyond the physical world. If you read chapter 7, book 7 of Plato's Republic, which is his discourse. Book seven, he talks about the cave analogy. He talks about what are human beings? Human beings are like prisoners locked in a cave, and in back of them is a fire and it's casting shadows on the wall. What do human beings? Human beings, that's reality. What I see is reality. But in reality, in truth, there's something back here. What they're seeing is the shadows of reality. Where's reality in back of them? And Plato says, when you come to understand what true reality is, you're free. The bonds come in, you are enlightened, and you begin to understand what is beyond the physical world. Do you know what Paul did? You see it in Acts 17. When Paul starts addressing Greco-Roman people, he starts quoting their philosophers. He says, okay, you believe there's something beyond the physical world? I want to tell you who he is. He's revealed himself to you. That's exactly what Paul does in Acts 17. I mean, it was incredible because as the, as the missionaries of the early church are out all over the Mediterranean world, it's relatively easy for them. I don't mean it's a cakewalk. Because the Greco-Roman world believed there's something out of this world. All the Christians did is, we know who he is. He's revealed himself, and he's revealed himself to Jesus. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he did. You want to believe in him? And all of a sudden, thousands and ultimately millions and eventually billions of people are going to respond to that gospel message. And thirdly, because I'm running out of time, thirdly, the fullness of time was religious. The Jews were expecting the Messiah. During the first century, there were seven or eight recorded people who claimed to be the Messiah. Because the oppression of Rome was so great that they believed the Messiah would be a political Messiah who would free us from the oppression of Rome. And their expectation was high. 
And even the New Testament book of Acts mentions a couple of these false messiahs. One was called Thutis, another one was called Judas the Galilean. They mentioned those in some of the stuff in Acts. There were many others. And then Jesus shows up. And so it's like the world, and I think this is the right way to say it, in the fullness of time, the world was set up for Jesus at the right time, at the right moment, at the right point in human history. Jesus walks onto the stage. And the response in the next 200 years is phenomenal. And as you already know, if you've studied history, the Roman Empire will disintegrate. It will be replaced by the church. You go to Rome today, what do you see? You see ruins. I, I don't mean modern Rome. I mean, you go, what do you see? You see ruins. You don't see the Roman Empire. You see ruins. Do you see ruins of Jesus? Jesus' church is everywhere. Jesus said, I will build my church. And that's what, he, that's what he's doing. And it's just, it's, it's a fantastic analogy. That little phrase, fullness of time. When Jesus shows up, the Son of God, born of a woman, born under law, the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, and you all the nations will be blessed, has come to fruition. He's here. And that's what Paul says. So this, this fantastic verse, verse 4 of Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born of the law. Now, I'm almost out of time, but verse 5 and following, he gives a series of purpose clauses. Why did he do it? Why did he show up? To redeem those who are under law, and two, second purpose, that we might receive adoption as sons. Mm -hmm. So the fullness of time, Jesus shows up to redeem us, ex agarazzo, to purchase us out of the marketplace of sin, and to put us in the family of God, the adopted as sons. You and I are not born children of God. We become children of God by putting our faith in Christ. So in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of woman under the law, to redeem the human race. Ek azarazo. Ek azarazo. Redeem us, purchase us, buy us out of the marketplace of sin so that we might become adopted into his family. And if we're adopted into his family, we have the right to call him Abba. That's in verse 6. Abba is an Aramaic term. Daddy, term of intimacy. And... Because we're now a child, we're an heir. You and I, we put faith in Jesus Christ, we're adopted. We have to see it as a Greek word. We're adopted into the family of God. And we have all the rights and privileges that go with it. One of the rights and privileges is to call God Abba. Mark 14, Jesus in Gethsemane, he speaks to the Father as Abba. You and I have the same right to do that. And in addition, we're an heir. We're joined here with Jesus. The coming kingdom. So Paul caps off his argument about is he contrasting and comparing the Abrahamic promise and you all the nations will be blessed with the law. This is masterful. I, I mean, I, I hope I'm. A, I love to teach this. Chapter three is one, and into chapter four, it's one of the most exciting passages in the scriptures because it really helps you to understand the difference between the Abrahamic covenant. And the law, and it helps you understand why God gave the law and what salvation in Christ really, really means for us. I wanted to get all that done. I think I hurried too much. So, are you with me? Did I lose you? You did good. 
fantastic stuff to be able to integrate together. So next week, um, uh, let me tell you a little bit what I want to do next week because now you, you hopefully you really got this nailed down. You really understand the, the power of what Paul is arguing about justification by faith. He says it over and over again. What I want to do now, because this is part of what we're doing in this class right now, I want to go to James. Now, I want to go to James chapter. We're going to do with the other parts of James a little bit later on. But I want to go to James chapter 2, verse 14, to the end of that chapter. Because it seems like there's a contradiction here in Scripture. As Paul has been arguing, you're justified by faith plus nothing else. Here comes James, who says you're justified by works. How do we put this? When I, I taught this at, at, uh, at uh, an undergraduate school and in a graduate program at one time as well, but the major paper for that course was for, I wanted my students to reconcile Galatians chapter 3 with James chapter 2, verse 14. They had to write a paper on it. Most of them were 15, 20 pages long. That will be your assignment. No, it won't. If I give assignments like that, you'll never show up. But from, I would love to have a favorite. Hey, Jim, from my notes, yes, sir. what did you say, Galatians 3 or 4? Galatians chapter 3. If I said Colossians, I'm sorry. I meant no, no, 3. No, Galatians. Galatians 3. Thank you. Galatians chapter 3 with uh, James chapter 2, verse 14 following. So next week what I want to do, if you uh, – Fred has sent it out. Glenn's going to have it on the PowerPoint for us, those of you who get it online. But I want to work through that handout. We're going to read James 2. We're going to study it a little bit. But we're going to, because this, this helps to reconcile the two for us. So that we can see they do not contradict one another. They complement one another. And that's the, the importance of putting those two together. It's quite, it's quite an important task. And I, I want you to be able to explain why they're not a contradiction, why they complement one another. Okay? Okay. All right, good. I wanted to get to this point today, and I honestly am amazed that we did it. So I guess that's another example of God's grace. I'm going to pray, and so next week we're going to start with James chapter 2. If you have that stuff with you, that would be great, and, and then we'll dig into that. If you have a chance, a little extra time, read James chapter 2, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Because we're going to spend a lot of time, we'll probably spend two weeks on that in, 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 in comparing it with Galatians. Our Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring him to write this book, especially here, this chapter, chapter 3. I, I believe it's one of the most important chapters in the New Testament. It's so simple, and yet it's so profound, because he's making this argument, comparing and contrasting law with the promise of Abraham, and you all the nations will be blessed, the blessing of salvation. It's, it's quite wonderful. It integrates the scriptures together in a wonderful way. I hope this is clear for the men. We, we hurried through some of this. I hope it's clear. I hope it's, uh, it makes sense. And I hope it's the kind of text that they can look at and say, well, I really understand what Paul's saying. We are in such a privileged position. Every one of us here in, in line or in the room, we are so blessed to have been born the side of the cross to be able to participate in all these wonderful blessings because the fullness of time has passed. Jesus has come. He's completed his work. He's ascended back to the Father, exalted. We are now participating in all the blessings of the new covenant. We, 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 we are so privileged 
to be able to participate in all these blessings, all because of Jesus. We are justified, declared righteous, secure in our position in Christ because of what he's done for us. Help us to live that. Help us to be bold. Help us to be intentional. Help us to be men of strong faith who love you and who represent you well. We pray this in your son's name. See you next week.